<clears throat> One of the uh, negative <clears throat> and widespread uh, uh, effects in the belief uh, in evolution that our society has embraced is that it has quickened the pace of devolution. If evolution is the theory that simple organisms over billions of years mutate into more complex organisms, resulting in more sophisticated species and higher life forms, then devolution is the exact opposite of that. Or, if you will, it is the understanding that though our first parents in the Garden of Eden were created very good and upright, they were without moral spot or blemish with superior mental and physical abilities, humankind has degenerated into lesser beings than Adam and Eve. And I believe that the, the theory of evolution and its adherence and the belief in it, whether you believe in it or not, it's in the air that we breathe, it's all around us, I believe it has contributed to and accelerated uh, the, uh, the devolution of the human race. According to the Bible, human beings are the crown of God's creation. Unlike anything else he created during the six days of creation, he created mankind in his own image. And it's difficult for us to overstate the significance of the image-bearing nature of humanity. The theory of evolution has accelerated our devolution because it teaches us that we are no different than any other animal. We are animals ourselves. We might be higher forms of animals, but still, we're animals. And if we're nothing more than animals, any kind of behavior that is refined or that seeks to conform to a moral or ethical code is mere pretense. We're just curious apes, after all. No need to get uppity. We're just animals. The theory of evolution has, has gotten into almost every, uh, every type of discipline of higher learning, from evolutionary biology to psychology. Uh, pretty soon it will enter into physics. Who knows? And now, of course, opportunists will look to the animals and see behavior that they would like to mimic. Look, they say, most animals don't have monogamous relationships, so neither should human beings, since we're just slightly more advanced animals. Look, animals behave, uh, uh, behave in homosexual uh, tendencies as well. We're just animals. Look, it's all, it's all good here. And so the argument, it does have a certain logic to it, doesn't it? Where animals, other animals behave in ways that go against the moral values that have been imposed upon us. So I'll behave, behave like the animals do. Now, by this point, some of you are asking, what in the world does this have to do with the passage uh, before us this morning out of Philippians 4? Now, that's a valid question. So let me try to answer it. If you were to boil down what Paul is saying in these two verses, if you're trying to boil that down, it would be that our thinking affects our behavior. How we understand who we are affects what we do. If we are animals, then the tendency among human beings will be to devolve to the lowest form of life and act just like they do. That's really what Paul is saying in these verses. That's what he's been saying all along in the book of Philippians. Now, there are at least a couple of problems with looking to animals as inspiration for how humans ought to behave. Probably more than that. You could probably rattle off a list of them. I've come up with a couple. 
First, animals aren't capable of higher level thinking the way that humans are. This is not to say that, that uh, especially with certain animals, they aren't capable of thinking at, at all. And some animals are very, very smart. But animals are far more instinctual than humans are. And second, because we are higher life forms, animals ought to be taking their cues from us, not the other way around. They ought to be looking to us. Ah, oh, the crown of creation. Look at those uh, human beings walking upright. Look at their nifty opposable thumbs. Think about all the things that they could do if animals were capable of that kind of thought. They ought to be looking to us. But we instead so often look to them to justify our behaviors. Now, some, who, some of those who want to behave like animals simply want to engage in behavior that is base and instinctual. They want to be free of any restriction that the so-called morality police have placed upon them. But in our passage, Paul is essentially saying that because our thinking has consequences for our behavior, we are to think on things that will lead toward virtuous behavior. Paul told the Philippians back in verse 7 that the peace of God would guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. And now he's zeroing in on the inner activity of their hearts and their minds. And Paul writes in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The biblical understanding of human nature is that what is inside a person, what they think, what they believe, what they believe it has a direct impact on what they do. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Now we should note that there is not a disconnect between the mind and the heart in biblical teaching the way that there is today. So many people think, if I could just get what's in my mind down to my heart, it would change my behavior. That's not the way the Bible thinks. The heart and the mind are, are intimately connected with one another. What is in the mind, what is in the heart of a person, causes what a person does. But you'll remember that the context for what Jesus told his disciples back in Matthew 15 is that the disciples were offended that Jesus had said earlier that it isn't what goes into a person that defiles him, contrary to the, the Pharisees' strict dietary laws. Jesus said it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. The Pharisees, they were looking at Jesus and the disciples. They saw what they, eat, what they ate, and they said, tisk tisk. And they looked down their noses at Jesus. And they thought about how defiled this man must be, the one that some were calling the Messiah. And Jesus said, it is not what you take in that defiles you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. And so in other words, defilement, it doesn't come from eating unclean foods. It comes from the things that issue forth from the heart and pass through the mouth on their way out. Now when you think about what Jesus says there in Matthew 15, and you compare it to what Paul is saying in Philippians 4, it might seem like Jesus and Paul are contradicting one another. Jesus says that it's not what goes into a person that defiles him. But Paul in Philippians 4 says that the Philippians are to think about, to consider, to dwell upon those things that are true, honorable. What they have learned to receive from him, as he says in verse 9, what they take in is important. But there is a difference. It's not a one-to-one -one equation. It's apples and oranges here. The Pharisees were concerned with food. Their chief concern was not getting unclean. 
And so the dietary laws, those restrictions, were, were of utmost importance, to the Pharisees, utmost importance to the Pharisees. Paul is talking about what you take in through your, your ears, your eyes, what you bring into your mind. But he's saying that that does, in fact, have a huge impact on who we are and what we do. The natural tendency of our hearts because of the sinful nature is that is resident in humankind is to pour forth all kinds of sinful behavior. But that kind of sinful behavior can be increased by the kinds of things that we think about, that we consider, that we ruminate upon. Conversely, if we consider, if we think about it, if we ruminate upon those things that are true, that are honorable, that are just, pure, lovely, and commendable, these will have a positive influence on what we do. Paul is calling on the Philippians to think in a manner that is consistent with their heavenly citizenship. In the words of one commentator, he urges them to be proactive in focusing their attention on those things that reflect the goodness of the gospel. Paul puts it another way in Colossians. Set your mind on the things that are above, where Christ is seated. We are to have a heavenly mindset. Now, Paul isn't, in verse 8, prescribing types of behavior. Instead, Paul is showing the Philippians what ought to be the focus, the motive, and the basis for their behavior. He will tell them how they ought to behave in verse 9, but right now in verse 8, he's telling them how to think. Incidentally, the word that's translated think, it has an accounting background. It can mean calculate, reckon. And so it refers to careful consideration. I'm not, a, I'm not a good finance guy. I, I really respect those who have a mind for finance. They can look at, they can look at the money. They can, they can see what's going on. This meeting that I was in this past week, one of the members is our treasurer for the committee, and he has an eye for detail, and he goes through everything line by line. And, and at one point in the meeting, it's sort of driving us crazy how detailed he is, but we, we respect it because it's the way that we as a committee are good stewards of all of this funding that has been entrusted to our care. That's, that's how we're to look at these things. We're to consider what is good and true and lovely, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure. We're to think about these things the way that, that a treasurer thinks about the budget, that thinks about the expenses, thinks about uh, what's coming in. We're to look at these things very carefully and consider them. We're to think upon things that are good and just. When I was in the military... I think all branches of the, mil- of the military are this way. Perhaps the Marines are, are better at it than most. The Marines are very deliberate about maintaining their history. They want to know every bit of detail they can possibly know about every bit of conflict that any unit has been in throughout the history. And why do they do this? Well, it's important to know what's happened in our past. The OPC is very much like that. We, we, have, a, we have a committee of the historian. And it's all about preserving the records of the the history of this denomination. And the military is the same way. But they do it for for purposes of of inspiration. They they retell the tales. And so if you're in a particular unit of the Marine Corps, you will learn the history of that unit. You'll learn the battles that they fought. You'll learn the battles that they lost. You'll you'll learn the the acts of valor that individual members of that unit uh, carried out. Why? Well, you think about those things. You're inspired by those things. You want to be like the guy who oftentimes is a private or a private first class who jumps on the grenade saving the lives of the members of his unit. You you want to be that guy to save those people. 
It inspires acts of valor and courage. And Paul, in a, in a, in a somewhat analogous way, is, is saying if you want to walk the walk of Jesus Christ, these are the types of things that you need to be bringing into your mind so that you can walk like Jesus Christ. Paul is calling on the Philippians here to think in a manner that is consistent with their heavenly citizenship. In the words of one, I'm sorry, I've already read that part. (laughs) Jump back too high up in my my manuscript. Um, He will tell them how they ought to behave in verse 9. Right now he's telling them how to think. In Romans 12 too, which we read earlier, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul's appeal in Philippians 4.8 is reminiscent of Romans 12, verse 2. And Paul expands upon it in Philippians 4.8, helping us to understand how our minds are renewed. How we go about this activity of renewing our minds. How we are to be transformed. How are we to be transformed by the renewal of our minds? By dwelling upon what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. The command that Paul gives them to think about these things, these six qualities, that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, and summarized by excellence and praiseworthiness, means that other things ought to be excluded from our thinking. What are the things that you dwell on? What are the things that keep you up at night? Or that trouble you during the day? Certainly things that you're worried about. If your teenage son has gotten his driver's license, for instance, you're probably going to be uh, a little bit anxious about that. But we also dwell on negative things that people have done to us. We dwell on the latest political controversy. We carefully consider all of the ways that we could have sarcastically come back to that person who insulted us in some way. But Paul is commanding us to so fill our minds with what is good, the truth of God's word, with that which is honorable or majestic, with that which is right or just or good, with that which is pure and worthy of awe, with that which is lovely or pleasing, with that which is commendable or a good report. He wants us to have these things in such abundance that we don't have time to dwell on the negative things. We should cultivate a sense of the goodness of the Lord so that we're not enticed by worldly, earthbound thinking. At the end of verse 8, when Paul says, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, he's most likely there giving a summary of those six virtues that he listed. Anything that is excellent or praiseworthy, in other words, what is true, what is honorable, etc., it's a catch-all, though. In case he didn't touch on any base, he's making sure that they're all covered I think many of us, when we read these verses, the first thing that we think of, the first thing that we think of is art, is, is music, the beauty of nature. And certainly Paul is not excluding those things. It's not necessarily, I think, the first thing that he had in mind. We often leap to those things. And certainly there, there is virtue in, in, in beautiful works of art, in beautiful pieces of music. Um, going out, being a part of nature, seeing the glory of God's creation as it, as it points to its creator. But for Paul, what would first come to mind is anything that would result in the approval of God. What Paul has in mind, of course, is first and foremost God's word. We're to think upon it. We're to, we're to dwell upon it. We're to ingest it. We're to take it in, make it a part of who we are. 
but also human endeavors that would result in the approval of the Lord. These things that, that human beings do that God looks down on and finds commendable. It's what God considers in human behavior to be of moral excellence that Paul is commanding us to deeply consider. The kinds of behavior and activity that God commends to us in Scripture. Psalm 101 verses 1 to 3, it says this, it exemplifies this kind of thinking. I will sing of the steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Of course, this does not mean that that art and music and natural beauty are worthless. Certainly some forms of it, some expressions of art probably are (laughs) a little less worthy than others. Uh, If you've been to an art museum in the last 20 to 30 years, there's some pieces of art you go... I I just don't know. (laughs) And others, you're just astounded by the work of creation that this artist has done. These things, however, just don't seem to be what Paul primarily had in mind. But certainly, by God's common grace, there are all kinds of human endeavors and behaviors, including art and music, but also scientific discoveries, exploration of all of God's creation that are worthy of our consideration. What Paul has said in verse 8 is very much in the abstract. These aren't exactly concrete examples of what we ought to think about, are they? It's somewhat nebulous. What does he mean by these things? And so that's why these categories of of virtues, these categories of commendable things, they've been filled over the the years, over the ages. So in verse 9, Paul gives the practical application. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. What does Paul mean by all of these things in verse 8? What is pure and lovely and true and commendable? Well, he's getting at it in verse 9. It's a bold thing to do. I, I don't know that I would ever stand before you and say, Hey guys, you want to know how to live a successful Christian life? Just look at me. <laughs> I don't think so. Of course, I'm not an apostle. And Paul was. Paul says these things. It's not arrogance. It's not coming out of arrogance from Paul. Paul understands the way that the Lord has transformed his life. And Paul and the Philippians knew each other. You know this. They, They knew each other really well. The Philippian church, it was one of the earliest churches in Europe to to jump on the the, the Paul bandwagon to support him in so many ways. They provided for him financially. They provided for him, putting him up. They gave him clothes. They gave him food. They took care of him when he left there and was engaging in his his missionary activity. They continued to support him. And so they know Paul. They know him probably better than, than any other church. And he's saying, if you want to know how to do these things, if you want to know how to think this way, just look at the example of Jesus Christ in my life. And so he's taking them from the abstract of verse 8 to the concrete in verse 9, from the theoretical to the practical. He's asking the Philippians to call to mind his teaching on his previous visits and in his letters. He has taught them on numerous occasions, whether in person or through his writings, and he wants them to put what he has taught them into practice. But it's, just, it's not just what Paul uh, taught them, but also what they have received from him that they are to put into practice. 
He says, what you've received from me. Do these things. Paul used the word translated received in, in Philippians 4. He used that also in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, where he said, and you'll know these words very well, for I received what I also delivered to you. That Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it. What Paul received, he gave to them. And so Paul seems to have in mind here the things that are given and passed along to others from one person to the next and one generation to the next. These are what he wants them to put into practice. And of course, he's speaking about the teaching of God's word. He's speaking about God's old, old covenant word, the Hebrew Bible, what, what God had given to his people of old. He's talking about the writings, the New Testament. And so he, he also tells them what, uh, to put into practice what they have heard from him. Well, this would seem to overlap with what they have learned from him, what they have received from him. But Paul may be thinking in terms of two pairs here. He wants them to practice what they have learned and received from him and also what they have heard and seen from him. And so what they have heard from Paul would include his teaching and those things he has received, such as the Lord's Supper that he's passed along to them. But it would also include the countless stories of events in his life that God has brought him through. And Paul was was an amazing storyteller. He talked and talked and talked. (laughs) And so they could remember how when he and Silas were in jail in Philippi singing hymns together that the earthquake came and, and the door to their cell was broken open. And they would remember how the Philippian jailer was probably a member of that church, how he ran and he knew, he just knew that they were gone and he was ready to kill himself because he knew that that was what was going to happen to him. And there sat Paul and Silas. They didn't run away. Paul was saying, put those things, put that into practice. They had seen how Paul was reluctant to burden them, how he wasn't looking to sponge off of them. He wanted to be self-sufficient, and yet how he was willing to receive their support for the proclamation of the gospel. He didn't want to be a burden to them, but they insisted, and so he received what they had to give him. What they had learned and received from him, what they have heard and seen in him, these they are to put into practice. And so it is somewhat of a foreign concept to us here that Paul is offering himself as an example of someone whose life, whose behavior, whose practice has been profoundly shaped by, dis- by deeply considering what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. But that's what Paul is saying. My life has been changed through the grace of God. But it's been changed by thinking about these things and thinking deeply. Paul has thought upon what, has, what is excellent and praiseworthy, and these things have affected how he behaves. What we think upon, what we engage our minds with, will affect what we do. God created us with minds and bodies, and these two are intimately connected. We're not Gnostics. The things that impact our bodies have an impact on our minds. The things that impact our minds have an impact on our bodies, what we do with our bodies. And so if we're only ever dwelling upon that which is not commendable or lovely, that which is is grotesque, that which is heinous, that which is inherently sinful, 
Those things that have no redeeming qualities about them whatsoever, if we're only ever dwelling upon those things, the darker aspects of this life, we will begin to lose sight of what is good and right and holy. And that which God declares to be evil will seem good to us, at least for a time. We will begin to forget the good things that the Lord has done for us. We'll forget His steadfast love for us, for instance. It will seem to have diminished. And so ultimately, though not exclusively, Paula is calling upon us to dwell upon the Lord Jesus Christ in our thinking. We will never be able to do that exclusively until we are with the Lord in heaven. And Paul understands that limitation here. We have earthly concerns. We have, we have uh, temporal needs that, that, at least for a time, take precedence. And we are not able, uh, as, as, as we often think we are, we're, we're actually not able to think about multiple things deeply at one time. And so Paul understands that. But, but we need to try to give our minds over to thinking about the Lord and things related to Him. Even as he tells the Philippians to practice what they have learned, received, heard, and seen in him, he's actually pointing them to Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's what he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. And so inasmuch as Paul is an imitator of Jesus Christ, he's essentially saying here in Philippians 4, then be imitators of him. Well, Paul ends verse 9 with a promise. Practice these things, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. In verse 7, he promised that the peace of God would be like a garrison. It would guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. Now he's saying that the God who gives that peace will be with them. He's given them commands in our passage. Think and practice. And now he is giving them a promise. The God of peace will be with you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then the God of peace is with you. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwells in you. That's a fact of reality. That that is simply the truth. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Paul is simply calling upon you. He is commanding you to dwell upon these things, to behave in ways that are consistent with the fact that you have been redeemed from God's everlasting punishment in hell. He's reminding you you of this and, and commanding you to think about these things. You are not an animal. You're not descended from an animal. You are created in God's image. You are a special creation of the Lord. Unlike any other creature that He made. And you are part of the crown of creation. But also, by faith in Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed. You have been set free from your slavery to sin. You are free. You can do what is right. If you believe that in Jesus Christ, you are a citizen of heaven, that's good news. And Paul is saying that in response to that good news, in response to that knowledge about yourself and what Jesus Christ has done for you, act like you're a citizen of heaven by thinking upon these good things. Brothers and sisters, that is the good news. Amen. Let us pray.